Hello everyone, I'm Lance Godey here in the Porter's 10Cast studio and this is Positively Mental. I would like to welcome you to the third installment of my new podcast and as my podcast name implies, I've kind of told everybody this uh, time and time again, but I'm going to tell you again. Uh, it's got a little bit of humor involved in the title, uh, but I intend to focus on mental health from a more positive perspective whenever possible, while still educating people along the way. So, this week is a Veterans Day week, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about a condition that a lot of veterans struggle with, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or many people hear it in its acronym, PTSD. Now, while PTSD is something commonly attributed to veterans, especially to those who served uh, while participating in an intense combat situations, uh, it is something that anyone can struggle with. Uh, domestic violence victims, accident victims, work-related incidents like a police officer or an EMT, anyone who has had an intense experience may uh, experience symptoms of PTSD. So it really uh, is open to the possibility of any number of people experiencing it. So I'm excited to have a guest in the studio today, and it's my first guest in my podcast experience. So uh, we're going to try to work our way through this and, and, and uh, take it easy on him because he's going to take it easy on me. So we're going to talk about PTSD, including its symptoms, uh, its treatments, and to provide an overall description of of. Uh, disorders that are in that same class. So Joseph Fountain is the psychology instructor in his second year at Central Wyoming College, where, uh, for full disclosure, I also work full-time. Uh, in addition, he is an Army veteran, having served as an infantry officer, and he is provisionally licensed as a professional counselor in Wyoming. He also comes to Wyoming with some great experience and training in the world of PTSD. So welcome to Positively Mental, Joseph, and thank you for joining me here in my podcast. Thank you very much, Lance. I'm really glad to be here. Um, it's often been said that I have a face for podcasts or radio. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, and, and me as well. So we're, we're a perfect pair to perfect be pair. doing this. Yes. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about PTSD? Sure. So um, Lance, like you had mentioned uh, PTSD is often associated with uh, soldiers, uh, warriors, combat, those with combat experience. And our first understanding of uh, what would later become described as PTSD uh, really began, um, we can trace this back even, in, in, even into uh, the, the classical period, you know, uh, Odysseus, uh, the, the description of the Odyssey um, is thought by some to be really a description of the symptoms of PTSD. And we, we also saw it identified in Shakespeare's Henry IV. Um, but the first kind of modern uh, view of PTSD was described as soldier's heart or irritable heart among Civil War soldiers. Mm. And... Um, uh, U.S. Dr. Jacob Mendez da Costa studied Civil War soldiers with 
what he described as cardiac symptoms and thought it to be an overstimulation of the heart's nervous system. Um, soldiers were often returned to battle after receiving drugs to control, control the, these symptoms, and this really led to the United States' first opioid epidemic. That's interesting. Uh, shell shock was the term used in World War One, and it was uh, PTSD then was thought to be the result of damage to the brain caused by the impact of the big guns because mm-hmm. there's a lot of artillery fired in World War One, and then the name was changed to Combat Stress Reaction or Battle Fatigue for World War Two and Korea, and I was surprised, very surprised, to find out that up to half of all World War Two military discharges were said to be the result of combat exhaustion or the combat that combat stress mm-hmm. reaction. So um, largely in response to uh, a better kind of understanding of what this diagnosis may be following a number of Vietnam veterans returning, uh, the kind of the, the handbook, the textbook of diagnosis, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM, uh, identified PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in 1980. And uh, sometimes there's a misunderstanding of the kind of things that can cause PTSD. You can have very adverse or uh, disturbing life experiences, um, and that those can even lead to some of the symptoms that we'll identify here in just a bit. But Without a clinical trauma, without a trauma as it's defined in that handbook, uh, we don't have a diagnosis of PTSD. And so what is that, what is that trauma? Um, exposure to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, and actual or threatened sexual assault. We can be exposed to these things by direct exposure. You know, it happens to us. We witness it. Um, Or if we learn that a family member or close friend um, suffered uh, exposure to one of those things. And with family members or close friends, um, you know, threatened death or or even death, for example, it needs to be sudden or unexpected. so, so what you're saying is, is that um, you can, you yourself can have uh, symptoms of PTSD, but people who are connected to those people may also have symptoms of PTSD. Absolutely. Um, and if you have, um, so for example, if uh, let's say your, your grandmother is in poor health and uh, time goes by and uh, she goes into hospice, um, would that be a, you know, a very distressing and tragic and, and sad experience? Uh, yes, absolutely. But if, uh, if, if grandmother's doing really well and she's in great health and then uh, all of a sudden has a heart attack, uh, that would be a qualifying trauma. Gotcha. That's interesting that, that even, even connection to uh, an event is, is the possibility of having PTSD symptoms. Yes, absolutely. Great. Okay. Um, and you know, why do we th- why do we think that we develop these symptoms in response to these traumas? Well, um, 
we as humans, you know, as an organism, we're always striving to maintain a balance uh, for optimum functioning. You know, in uh, this process is known as allostasis, and it's largely unconscious. So if I crank up the temperature in here to 140 degrees, you're not going to have to think about the things you need to do to cool yourself down. You know, your your metabolism will slow. You may start perspiring. And it's like that for emotionally significant events as well. We kind of encode away uh, in our memory, and the more significant the event, the more likely it is to kind of get burned into our burned into our brain, and the responses then become unconscious. So, doesn't only have to be a trauma that um, is emotionally significant. You know, most people can remember their first kiss. And they can remember a lot of, maybe a lot of the details of that first kiss, you know, what the weather was like, maybe what they were wearing, uh, a lot of the sensory stuff. And it's kind of the same thing for a trauma because those emotionally significant memories, they're actually, uh, the, the memories are wired by the amygdala, which is the uh, the fear and emotion center of the brain, whereas your day-to-day kind of stuff like what you had for breakfast last week um, is encoded by the hippocampus. So when, uh, when I sometimes ask my students, uh, do you remember where you were on 9-11, on September 11, 2001? Um, I'll ask them, what were you wearing? What was the weather like? And uh, just some memorable responses were, oh, yeah, it was my first day of kindergarten and I was wearing a yellow dress. Or I was hanging out at home, the weather was cloudy, and I was wearing purple sweats. And then I'll say, do you remember what you were wearing or what the weather was like three weeks ago? And the response is, well, no, I got no idea about yeah, that. Right. So what's the difference in the way those memories come up? Right. And this is, this is really uh, very, very closely related to PTSD. Um, when something traumatic happens, when you're exposed to one of those uh, traumas that we identified earlier... Your, your, your brain essentially says this is an important event. You are in grave danger or someone uh, that you care about was in grave danger. And pay attention to those details. See what's going on. And I'm going to make sure that if there's anything similar that occurs in the future, any reminders that I'm going to keep you safe. Mm. Um, I'm going to turn on your... Uh, your energy center, your what we call the sympathetic nervous system. That's the we, fight or flight. That is a, exactly, yeah. yeah, that's the fight or flight, that acute stress response that uh, gives us that gives us that burst of mental and physical energy to address the danger. So even though that is something that you're experiencing in the present, the past or your brain pulls the past back in to help you resolve that issue in the present. Yes, and that's that's uh, a really good description. That's precisely why um, a lot of trauma therapists and researchers, including me, th- tend to think of PTSD as a disorder of memory um, in which we're not distinguishing between real danger and those kind of you know, deeply embedded uh, memories of a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. So you, interestingly, you know, how does PTSD get diagnosed? What's the, what's the typical process in that? So, um, so we talked f- 
I, you know, we talked first about the 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 trauma, those um, those clinical traumas, right. um, and one of the things I, I just want to um, mention before we talk about symptoms is that only a trained clinician can diagnose PTSD or other mental disorders. And um, in this age of the internet, we're often tempted to uh, look up our symptoms and yep. we diagnose ourselves or, right, right. or even others, uh, other people in our lives, uh, right. we diagnose them with mental disorders. Um, but really only a trained clinician should be diagnosing uh disorders. And if you recognize uh, the symptoms of PTSD in yourself or someone else, uh, I just strongly suggest you seek professional guidance and to not assume that you or someone else has PTSD. And definitely don't don't just Google it and then (laughs) assume that you are now diagnosed because you looked it up on the Google uh, to be able to to move forward. Yeah, you know, I think as we think about those symptoms, uh, there's probably people out there that are all thinking of some of the things that they're possibly cluing them in to the possibility of do I or don't I? Do you feel like there's some things that are pretty typical of of those symptom that symptomology of of uh, of PTSD or, or something in that category? A- absolutely, Lance. We and you know, as you know, we describe those as the signal symptoms. So we need a certain number of symptoms to persist uh, for over a month in order to make a diagnosis of PTSD. And that uh, trauma is absolutely the prerequisite, as I mentioned before. Um, but among the 20, 20 symptoms in four different clusters, um, some of them are very, very commonly experienced. Um, and so those clusters, the first cluster of symptoms, five possible symptoms uh, that all relate to re-experiencing the trauma or having uh, intrusive thoughts or memories about the trauma. And we need just one of these five uh, from this cluster. So these include things like unwanted upsetting memories. They just pop into your head. You know, these, this is for a lot of people, the trauma is the worst day of their life. It's the last thing that they want to be thinking about. And yet it really, um, intrudes in, into their thinking. Um, nightmares, uh, would be one of those signal symptoms. Um, and we, it's described as nightmare, nightmares in the manual, um, but I really like to think of them as trauma dreams because we can have all kinds of, you know, bad nightmares. I frequently um, have a nightmare that I have a math test coming up and I haven't been to class the entire semester. I don't even know where to go. Um, So that's a nightmare for me, but the trauma dreams always include some kind of content related to the trauma that you suffered. Uh, flashbacks is included in this cluster, and the common misperception, especially among uh, those who've experienced military trauma, is that flashbacks are really common, when in fact it's a pretty rare symptom. Um, it's, it's, it's actually pretty uncommon for a person to be perceiving and acting as though he or she is back in that kind of, uh, in the trauma or, or a similar environment. So we rarely see that one. Um, emotional distress after exposure to trauma reminders and physical reactions. You're, um, aside from, you know, feeling bad 
when uh, one of those memories pops into your head or when you drive past that intersection where you were involved in that serious car accident. Also, your body uh, your body can just kind of react automatically. You know, you might so your heart might start racing, um, even independent of a, a kind of a conscious uh, recognition of that. So that's those are the five, and we again we need one of those from that first cluster. The second is um, also the the whole cluster is really a signal symptom, and that is avoidance, um, avoidance of the of thoughts or feelings, the the kind of um, internal reminders, and also avoidance of the external reminders. So, you know, I don't uh, I don't drive past that intersection. I'll go well out of my way so that I don't have to pass that intersection where that, that uh, traumatic car wreck occurred. Then, um, and we need one, either one of, the, uh, we need one of those, either the, uh, the avoidance of thoughts and feelings or avoidance of external reminders. And this is re- really where the avoidance of the thoughts and feelings are really where we see um, the high rates of substance abuse among those who've been diagnosed with PTSD because um, just trying to do anything you can to not think about this horrible thing that happened to you. And uh, depressants, alcohol, uh, opioids, uh anti-anxiety drugs are all uh, all kind of help you to check yeah, out right. and get away from those. Kind of disconnects you from your thoughts or your feelings. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, what we also often see is negative changes in thinking and in mood. And from this cluster, we need at least two symptoms. Um, amnesia about certain details about the trauma. Not remembering key features of, uh, of it, um, having developing overly negative thoughts or assumptions about oneself or the world. You know, the entire world is dangerous. Um, all people are malicious or bad. Um, exaggerated blame of, of yourself or others for causing the trauma. Um, and this is one that I've seen with a number of my clients where they know in their head, they know you know, their thoughts are, I'm not responsible for this, but much deeper down is this sense of blame or guilt mm-hmm. um, or shame for causing the trauma, even though they know in their head, yeah, rationally speaking, logically speaking, this is not my fault. Uh, just developing negative feelings like sadness, hopelessness, um, and a decreased interest in activities that you used to enjoy, um, feeling isolated and alone, uh, and then finally in this cluster, uh, a signal symptom, difficulty experiencing positive feelings, not being able to have normal positive uh, emotions like uh, happiness or enjoyment or the ability to have fun. And then our last cluster uh, of symptoms, and again, we need, uh, just like with the negative changes in thinking and mood, we need two out of these possible six uh, and that, w- that would be irritability or aggression. And I'd like to think of this irritability, uh, some really interesting examples of both flash anger and rage amnesia. Um, I had one client who had been uh, 
had been in Iraq and was responsible for a lot of convoys and convoy security. And he was actually on his way in to meet with me one day, came in kind of sheepishly, and I, I said, how are we doing today? And he got a smile on his face. He says, I'm really, really embarrassed about what happened on the way in. And I said, what happened? He said, well, I'm waiting at the light, and this jerk comes up behind me at, you know, 50 miles an hour and slams on his brakes at the last minute. He's right on my bumper, and I'm trying to maintain my cool like we talked about. I'm trying to maintain my cool. Light changed green, and he laid on the horn. I said, oh, oh, what happened then? He said, the next thing I knew, I was standing on the hood of his car, hitting his windshield with my fist. Right. And he has no recollection of everything from the horn to when he's standing on the hood. And he just realized he was shocked, and he just kind of jumped off the hood and got back in his car and drove away. And I can only imagine what that what that driver, the other driver, the other driver was thinking. Sure, um, but that's an an example of it. Just you know, it just happens like that. You know, right. just and you forget. Just, yeah. yeah. And forget how you got there. Uh, risky and destructive behavior is also an arousal and reactivity symptom. Um, and then the signal symptom from this symptom cluster, this last symptom cluster, is hypervigilance. Just being constantly aware of your surroundings, people moving in your surroundings, changes in your surroundings, uh, constantly monitoring or scanning for threats. Um, and that's very, very common to see with uh, with any type of trauma that results in PTSD. Uh, heightened startle reaction, difficulty concentrating, and just because we're, you know, uh, we're constantly mobilized, our alarm system is, you know, is on a hair trigger, very, very sensitive. Um, we often see difficulty in sleeping, right. independent from the nightmares. So what's, what do you, what would you say are the, percentages of people that experience either PTSD or have some sort of trauma experience in their life? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so most estimates suggest that about 60% of people in the U.S. will experience one of those clinical traumas at least once in their life. So, you know, that's a majority of Americans will, will experience that trauma. Uh, but not everybody goes on to develop PTSD, and there are some factors related to that. Uh, it appears that uh, women, uh, women in the United States, uh, 10% of them will be diagnosed with PTSD at some point in their lives, and 4% of U.S. men. That's interesting. I, I, I kind of almost would have thought that was reversed, that, that it would be higher for men than women. Yeah, and you know there are there are a lot of different hypotheses about why that may be. Um, is it is it potentially just diagnosis? Like men are more, less likely to seek treatment, whereas women are more likely. So the rates of diagnosis would be higher for women. That that is a definitely one of the hypotheses, and I think that's a re- really good direction to look um, in in being fortunate enough to work with combat veterans and, and police officers, uh, you know, vulnerability, you know, saying there's something wrong with me, uh, when that's seen as a weakness, yeah, that definitely 
um, in those, you know, traditionally male-dominated professions for both, I think, for both men and women, they're going to be a lot less inclined to come in and say, hey, there's something wrong and I need help. You bet. You bet. So, Joseph, you know, that kind of leads us into what are the ways that people can receive treatment for for PTSD? Uh, well, you know, most of the... Uh, the evidence-based treatments kind of fall under this category of cognitive behavioral therapy, which takes a look at thinking and the way that your thoughts may be a, you know, not a, a, a beneficial adaptation uh, to the trauma that you suffered and also to the actions, you know, what kind of uh, behaviors are you engaging in to try to compensate or cope with this trauma. And so a very popular one under, under uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, it, that a lot of people have heard of is eye movement desensitization. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is why we usually refer to it as EMDR. Right, right. Um, and the theory behind this is that, well, recalling the trauma or processing the trauma we can do things to balance the activity between the two sides of the brain, the two hemispheres of the brain. Um, cognitive processing is really just discussing uh, thoughts and feelings surrounding the trauma. Um, and good interpersonal or what's often described as humanistic psychology is also shown to be effective. Um, Making that con human connection with the, human with the connection. clinician builds that level of trust and then opens up to the possibility of change. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And lately, uh, there's been some really exciting and I, th I find it very interesting research into both equine and canine therapy uh, for, for PTSD. And we know that contact or even the presence of, say, dogs or, uh, you know, riding a horse leads to... Um, leads to a, uh, the, an increase in a neurotransmitter and a hormone called oxytocin, which tends to relax, mm -hmm. uh, relax the body. It, it, it tends to lead to feelings of safeness and security and, and comfort. And so it's, uh, it's thought that that's um, why canine therapy and equine therapy have been so very valuable. Well, sure. Who doesn't love a dog yeah. um, and being able to spend time with dogs, let yeah. alone some of us maybe are a little bit more intimidated by horses, but I've always heard that, um, that horses are really good at judging uh, emotion and responding appropriately. I mean, there's an entire branch of therapy called equine assisted therapy. That's huge. In fact, there's some, there's some folks around here that do that. So um, it would totally make sense. So, Joseph, you've been trained uh, in a particular type of treatment for uh, PTSD. Uh, can you tell uh, listeners a little bit more about that? Uh, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Um, so I was trained by uh, Dr. Eric Kruger from the VA in using uh, something called prolonged exposure therapy, or PE. Um, and it was developed by uh, two clinical psychologists, Edna Foa and Barbara Rothbaum, in the early 1990s. And it, it does have, uh, evidence supports that it has the highest effectiveness by far of any PTSD treatment. Uh, it's, it's really uh, 
quite an ordeal for the clients. Uh, a lot of therapists really don't like to do it because it's it's so hard for the clients. But but uh, you know if you you have someone that is willing to commit to it and and go through that, um, the the effectiveness and will the and the, I'll just tell you the results that I've seen just blew my mind. Um, just the changes that can take place. Right. Um, so. So I'm, you know, have the very huge pleasure of uh, being able to supervise you <laughs> at the uh, at Central Wyoming College, where we've had the opportunity and, and the great experience of you being able to work with some of our students in utilizing the PE or the prolonged exposure therapy, and I think it's just you know, amazing. Uh, it was a new experience for me and, and being able to supervise someone with that experience. Uh, and as you know, you're going through this process, I think I'm learning stuff as well, uh, which is a great experience for, for me. I think for anybody even out there who's considering this is, you know, looking at different, um, you know, therapy techniques that might work. Uh, luckily, or maybe unluckily, you, you work at the college. So <laughs> you have to be a CWC student for the possibility uh, of that. Um, but do you know if there's anybody in the community that's that's trained in, in that uh, particular mode of therapy? I don't believe there is yeah. in Fremont County. And and that's, you know, hopefully that's something it's in the in the thought of, of therapy techniques. It's probably still fairly new. Um, you know, the 90s is a, a pretty recent era compared to cognitive behavioral and, and as you mentioned, equine or canine assisted therapies are fairly new as well. They're trying a number of things that they can at any given time to try to um, do what we can to, to help those that are in those types of scenarios. So that maybe for those that aren't as familiar out there as, as we are, um, PTSD falls closely within other anxiety, uh, trauma-related, stressor-related disorders, uh, kind of the category of mental health disorders. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe anxiety and, and other disorders and what might distinguish them from each other? Because maybe there's some people out there that might not necessarily um, identify with a PTSD uh, type of uh, situation, but maybe more so just anxiety. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So first, I just want to make mention of something that's uh, a disorder that's very close to PTSD, which is acute stress disorder. And the only uh, major distinguishing characteristic here is that acute stress disorder occurs three days after the trauma to no more than one month following that trauma. Um, Moving on to anxiety disorders, the main difference between trauma and anxiety disorders is the presence of a trauma, uh, which then later triggers a memory, versus with anxiety disorders, what we see is this kind of anticipatory anxiety, which we know is worry. Uh, I'm, I'm worried that something bad is going to happen, whereas with the trauma-related disorders, something bad already has happened. happened. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so a couple couple few of the disorders that are uh, that are clustered under the under anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety disorder. If you're experiencing uh, this, you know, worry about more than one thing for more than six months, 
we might we might be looking at uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, agoraphobia, many people think that that is like fear of crowds or fear of people, uh, but actually it's a little more specific than that. It's uh, fear of having a panic attack or uh, less frequently other embarrassing incident like falling or incontinence in the elderly um, in a situation where you may not be able to escape or get help. So if I have a panic attack in a movie theater or a shopping mall or a parking lot or on a bus, um, nobody's going to be able to help me or I won't be able to get away from that. Social anxiety disorder is also one that is... Um, sometimes misunderstood. It's not just mere shyness. It's a, a real, real fear of negative evaluation, uh, social evaluation. People are judging you. They're getting all judgy and that raises your anxiety level. And then uh, phobias are also included in anxiety disorders. And a lot of people have, you know, fears of snakes or spiders. Um, but unless it's preventing you from functioning in an occupational or social kind of realm, then we're not going to make a diagnosis of that. So, so that's like something, you know, fear of speaking in public, uh, like you, you know, snakes, those types of things are something that as long as it doesn't become pervasive and prohibit you from leaving the house or, or doing certain things, it wouldn't rise to that level. A absolutely. Yeah. So if you, um, let's say you were you were offered a great job, you know, inspecting crawl spaces and you're arachnophobic. Uh, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do this. They're going to pay me a lot of money for this and I'm not going to do it. Sure, sure. Um, or, you know, I have, uh, I have a fear of surgical procedures and needles. Um, that doesn't stop me from giving blood. It doesn't stop me from getting IVs or getting medical procedures when I need them, even though I really don't like it. Right, <laughs> right really liking disliking something to the point where it just becomes life affecting absolutely like most people can get through it in one way shape or form because they have to yes yeah exactly well this is great i mean you've really just gone through a ton of stuff um you know i hope we haven't uh, overwhelmed people too much uh by really kind of deep diving into ptsd and some of the some of the symptoms, some of the treatments, some of the things that are potentially they might be out there thinking about uh, gives them enough uh, information, hopefully, to seek out someone. If you feel like you have uh, anything that kind of came up for you that says, hey, I've got that and I've got that and I've got that. Uh, again, we want to remind everyone out there that the key is is to seek help, um, get hold of a clinician, uh, at, at one of the whatever centers that you would like to try. Uh, and the key is, is seeking help. So um, anything that uh, you would like to say, um, Joseph, to just kind of wrap up your, your perspectives. I really appreciate you having me on here today, Lance, and especially on Veterans Day. Um, I just want to send a message and thanks to each and every veteran uh, for his or her sacrifice and service. Uh, you know, it's not only combat or, you know, losing um, losing your comrades, but also people who serve have had to miss important birthdays, holidays, anniversaries. Uh, everyone who is engaged in military service worked long, long hours for very little pay, exposure to the elements, danger, um, 
really crummy living conditions. Um, and so I'd like to salute all veterans, uh, but especially my father, who was an infantry officer and uh, was awarded the Combat Infantry Badge in Vietnam. Uh, my Ranger buddies, Ross Flores, Nate Grable, and J.T. Bundy. And a shout-out to David Baird, who's brought light to so many struggling veterans, all of the many exceptional men and women with whom I have had the privilege of serving. That's great. Um, you know, I wanted to take an opportunity as well to mention um, Joseph uh, kind of spearheaded an effort at Central Wyoming College that launched today, uh, both it was on purpose that we launched it today, and that is the uh, Veterans Valor Room. Um, do you want to just give us a, a 30 seconds to a minute description of kind of that process and, and what that is? Absolutely. Uh, put you on the, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit <laughs> no worries. Uh, just to give you a, a, a quick run. But No give, worries. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, so uh, veterans who decide to, re- to come to college or return to college uh, after their service often face unique challenges. Uh, the, the college environment, uh, you know, the hustle and bustle can be kind of overwhelming. Um, they're not really quite sure where to go for resources and referrals. Uh, so a lot of colleges, and now we can count CWC um, among them due to the support of everyone at CWC, uh, provides a, a, a space, a, a space for veterans to go and stand down, um, to just get away from the, uh, from the, the hectic pace, um, uh, enjoy camaraderie with other veteran students, and also uh, be directed to necessary resources. So we're very, very grateful for all the support that everyone in the administration uh, at CWC has given uh, to bring about this important resource. And where is that uh, Veterans uh, Valor Room? It's located in uh, Main Hall in the library, actually. Uh, head in, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the CWC library, it's on the first floor. Just head all the way around to the back, and you'll you'll see it there. It's a great opportunity. I mean, it's it's a intended to be a bit of a quiet space, uh, reflective space, which is a good space to uh, stand down, as mm-hmm. you uh, I think so eloquently uh, described it. Uh, so that's great. Um, Joseph, thank you uh, for being my first uh, my first guest at uh, the Positively Mental uh, podcast. Um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, hope maybe even have you back at some point. Uh, we'd love to have some return guests, especially as the listeners out there have had an opportunity to listen. Uh, please give us some feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear more about any particular areas that you would like to know more about. So you know, the great thing about Joseph as the uh, psychology instructor at uh, CWC is uh, he knows a lot about a lot of things, or maybe a little about a lot of things. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> I think it's the latter. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Um, so as I mentioned last week, uh, I end my podcast with a challenge on actions you can take based on what we've talked about. So This week, here is my challenge. So think about your friends, your coworkers, or family members that served in the military. Uh, You know, go up to them 
or even someone else you might meet and ask them questions about their service. Not just thanking them. I mean, you know, that's always the standard thing, and that's a great thing. But a lot of times, it's really important for them to share uh, their experience. You know, so ask them what branch they served in. Where did they serve? How long did they serve? Show that genuine interest in their answers and really pay attention to the passion, the patriotism, the dedication that they had in serving and 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 really just reinforce that 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 that's uh, something that you want to know more about and give them that uh, environment that it's safe to talk to you about that and then when the conversation is concluded thank them for their service that's always a great thing to do for service members I want to thank you again for listening and if you know someone struggling with their mental health talk to them Listen with an open mind and offer your support, or call a professional. Remember, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. And let's all be positively mental out there.